Welcome to Comscast, Life in Full Duplex, a podcast by ClearCom. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. My name is Bob Boster, and I'll be your host today on this edition of Comscast, Life in Full Duplex. This is an occasional podcast on Intercom, the amazing things empowered by Intercom in a wide variety of applications, and some of the special things in the production world of which we are an important part. This is the first of a two-part series on a groundbreaking production of Labo M put on outdoors in San Diego in October of 2020. This production was the work of the San Diego Opera and incorporated members of the San Diego Symphony and a lot of creative work from the production team. In part one, we'll talk to Ross Goldman from EventWave about the technical elements of the audio and communications which he designed for the production, including transmission of the audio to the car radios of the audience members. In part two, we'll be joined by Mike Janney, who was stage manager for this unique production. But let's jump into part one and get started. Is that how you got into the business was through uh, like recording audio audio engineering vis-a-vis recording? Or did you start off as a live sound person or an events person? Or how did that work? Uh, both of my parents worked uh, in theater, actually both on Broadway. And then they moved out to San Diego to work uh, to start up a new theater in San Diego called Starlight, which was an amphitheater. And then, uh, so I just grew up around the theater. They actually fell into corporate events um, by providing talent for corporate events, and then they ended up producing them. So I sort of learned what that whole world was, which if you don't know you know, what a corporate event is, how do you find out about this whole industry? And then uh, I did get my start working in, in the studio that was owned by uh, one of my business partners, and he did corporate events as well. And so that was, it was all through my parents, but eventually sort of landed on corporate as my career, but um, still like doing sound design for theater and film and TV when I get a chance. Oh, that's great. That's funny. So Event Wave has taken many forms over the years. It used to be a company called Sound Surgeon that was primarily a recording studio uh, where I got some training and interning when I was in middle school. Um, but the founder of it had always done corporate events, and he was a freelance engineer. And around 2009 to 2010, he thought, why don't I start buying some equipment that AV companies don't seem to want to buy? And it was things as early, before that was a CD player, uh, and then a first digital console, things like that. So he would own these few key pieces that were sort of on the vanguard of digital audio at the time. And then uh, around 2010 is when he said, well, maybe I could buy a sound system and actually do the whole thing. Um, And so he started this business out of a garage and then a storage unit. And then when I partnered in in 2011, we were starting to get a little more um, in depth with our inventory and thinking, wow, what if we could buy a line array? Then we'd be a real sound company. So we bought a, a little line array and kept going from there. And now our focus is really providing just audio for high-end corporate events. And we love challenges. We love unique situations that we have to sort of design a solution for. Uh, so we have this rental business now. We fully staff events. Uh, but we also, myself and the other owners of the company, we all still freelance for other AV companies or, in my case, for theaters or operas. Uh, and then I'm lucky when I can put the two together. So for this last opera we did, I could provide the whole sound system and be the sound designer. That's great. So um, you said there's a few people involved in the company. How how many people are in the are in the team? 
Well, there's actually five owners, which is a, a very interesting um, partnership that we all have. And we are all sound nerds. None of us are business people. So we probably should have partnered in a business person at some point to tell us how to make some money. But we just, we love gear. We love the business. Uh, and we all have different backgrounds. One of our uh, partners has a background in film and TV and radio. My background's more in theater. A couple are more from the studio background. Uh, and then pre-COVID, we had two full-time employees. They're now furloughed, unfortunately. But th that was basically our unit was about seven of us. And um, it sounds like you you have done a lot of events. Um, you know, how does that sort of work as a, I don't know, demystify the sales process of that for, for our listeners a little bit? Because I think people often wonder how these things come together. Well, it's all about relationships and word of mouth. We've tried other marketing and advertising techniques, and I certainly don't blame our clients for just wanting someone else to recommend and say, we've used this company. I mean, our biggest compliment is when a client says, the one thing I didn't have to worry about with this event was sound. I just knew you guys would take care of it. And so if we can get that kind of referral, then we're in. And I will say it takes many years to build trust with a client. Uh, and a lot of the ways that we get business providing rental equipment is that we start as a freelance engineer because we were recommended or referred. And after a few years, maybe five years of working for this end client or this producer, it just so happens that they say, hey, we're doing a show on the West Coast. Do you do you have gear? Do you know someone? And then we can say, yeah, we'd love a chance to bid on it, provide a quote. It's not always easy when sometimes clients want to just hire a full service production company that does the entire event. They don't want to piecemeal it out. But on the other hand, sometimes we benefit from that. There's a lot of technical directors out there that love saying, I, I just I love this lighting company. They knock it out of the park. Sure. We like to go with event wave for audio. And that's what we really like is when we can just be brought in to, to focus on that. Uh, another place that we get some business is large events maybe coming to town that have a huge general session and then a bunch of smaller general sessions and breakouts. And they go, we just need someone to come help execute this part of the event and just nail it so we don't have to think about it because we're tapped on gear. And they could go to any of the wholesale rental companies out there and just order a truckload of gear, but it doesn't mean it's going to get put together in a way that makes sense or that there's someone that knows what they're doing that's going to take care of the client. So that's another good opportunity for us to kind of get in with the client. That's great. Mostly San Diego area, or do you cover the whole Southern California swath or, or even farther afield? Yeah, certainly farther afield. Um, we we do a lot of Southern California or just sort of the Southwest. So we often go to Phoenix and Vegas, which are popular corporate event cities. And then up to Northern California, we've trucked out to Dallas, to Nashville at times. But I think our, our work covers the globe because we all freelance or we just get hired to bring, maybe fly with a few pieces of gear and then use local gear. So I've... Loved the opportunity to travel the world. I've done shows on five continents, and I wow. I appreciate that. But at the same time, uh, staying a little closer to home is also my long-term strategy that I won't have to travel as much as I get older and so have more of a, a normal nine-to-five business here. So tell me about what COVID has done to this um, activity and, and how that's um, impacted your business, and, and are there things that you've had to take on that you were not previously in your services that you offered, or um, has it stayed pretty consistent? 
Well, COVID has definitely decimated the corporate event industry. I'm sorry to say, um, it's it's a real shame. A lot of people are out of a job, and I'm not sure that that they're all going to make it. All the employees, all the companies, it's a long road back. Um, but we've been lucky to work on some virtual events throughout. And we've also been lucky, I think particularly because we're in Southern California, to be able to do a lot of drive-in events, weather permitting, which is pretty much year-round here. So that's been our two focuses, uh, virtual events, which we work mostly with other AV companies on, uh, providing audio design, engineering, things like that. And then uh, starting this past summer, we started doing drive-in events for a classical music organization called Mainly Mozart. And they were one of the first ones in the country to do a drive-in classical concert in the COVID era. And they were stumbling their way into it, as were we, in this dirt parking lot uh, at a fairgrounds. And concert by concert, we figured out the way to do it uh, and ended up doing dozens of these. They actually went with a different audio company for their first one that was more of a rock and roll company, which probably would have been fine for a rock and roll show. But the nuances of trying to put on classical music in a dirt parking lot is it's a it's a tricky thing to pull off um so we were grateful to have that opportunity to come in and say they said these last guys we had a lot of problems here's what we're looking at can you try to figure out how to do this the right way and then that led all the way to october when we did the opera drive-in which in a lot of ways was the culmination of everything i had learned over the last few months so for the mostly Mozart concerts, how many players uh, was it for the for the event? How many people on stage? It was great. It started very sim simple and then built up over time. So we started mainly with quartets, quintets, sextets, I think never more than seven or eight people on stage. And at first they were socially distanced, all wearing masks because they were mainly string quartets. So they didn't need their mouth to play their instruments. Uh, as the summer went on, they got a little more bold with, okay, we can test the musicians as they come in, keep them in a bubble, and then that means they don't have to wear a mask for those that either need to sing or play a trumpet or something like that. And that took us to their festival orchestra in October, which was, I think, at the most 30, around 34, 35 musicians. Wow. So pretty big, uh, mainly socially distanced on stage, everyone wearing masks that could, but that was a, a pretty big uh, undertaking. And and for that kind of music, I, I imagine that for many of those players, they're not used to playing in a situation where they need to be miked and that where they may only be able to hear things through monitoring. Um, was that a challenge? And, and how did you sort of manage working through that environment? Um, or maybe I'm envisioning the outcome incorrectly. <laughs> you're, you're envisioning it perfectly. Uh, and and that was my biggest concern going into it. And definitely my theater background made me maybe too anxious about it, but I, I've always looked at the theater sound world as I never want to just come in and throw a bunch of technology at this art form that's been done for many years before amplification. And I want to make sure that the artists and the conductor feel like we're on their team. So from the beginning, it was a lot of uh, standing on stage and listening to, okay, well, what does it sound, what does the PA sound like when you're on stage? How distracting is it? How much are you getting back? And then talking to 
all the musicians and the conductor and saying, what will help you? How does this sound? Let's try this. We moved the PA around quite a bit the first couple outdoor concerts we did to try to figure out how can we cover the area but not have too much on stage, but maybe a little bit is good. Uh, figuring out monitor mixes. Uh, we love using iPads to control monitor mixes so you can stand on stage and really understand what they're hearing because um, unlike rock and roll with in your monitors now where your mix is 100% your mix, we're really just trying to fill in what's missing that they're not hearing on the stage. Of course, there's no acoustic reflections in an outdoor concert, so they're not getting that, but they are getting a bit of the PA. They're hearing each other a little bit, six, 10 feet away. Uh, so that was definitely a challenge. And I it also, once you start delivering quality concerts, then you get more buy-in from the musicians and the conductor and they go, wow, we're getting good reviews. People seem to like it. I guess these guys know what they're doing. And then they open up a little more to this dialogue about well, what can we really do to, to make your sound yourself on stage sound good. But to their credit, I'll say, I'm sure it's never anywhere near the sound that they're used to in a, in a acoustically well-designed concert hall. So I applaud them for, for doing their best. Was that your first experience with doing FM transmission for um, for outdoor events, or had you had you messed around with um, micro transmission before? This was our first. So we spent a few months uh, at the beginning of the COVID lockdown, experimenting, um, buying some different products, just doing various parking lot tests in and around our warehouse, and then in the various locations in San Diego that we knew. Uh, we were going to be working in. I will say that I think there is a, a big hole right now in the FCC regulations for doing this kind of event that we could definitely use some legislation that would say we understand outdoor events and drive-ins are necessary right now. And so here's an easy and affordable way to make sure that you're covering this parking lot properly. Uh, I will say with mainly Mozart, they Actually, their first concert was with an AM radio system. That was with the other audio company, and they weren't very happy with that. And we came in with the FM system, and it sounded a lot better. But they still loved the PA, and a lot of their audience either listened with their windows down or brought a convertible, rented a convertible just to come to this, or sat in the back of their pickup truck. So they were very much into the the PA system from the beginning, and then we the FM was there really for patrons that didn't want to have their windows down or maybe were so far away that they, the PA wasn't as loud as they wanted, but we really strove to cover the entire audience area with the PA, which for them was only at most 250 cars. But for most of the summer, it was like 100 to 150 cars, and by October, they're up to 250 to 300. Uh, with the opera, they were planning from the beginning to have well over 500 cars. And so we looked at that and said, we can cover this with the PA, but it's gonna be expensive and a lot of logistics. Uh, and then the, really the deciding factor was the general director of the opera came to one of the mainly Mozart concerts and he listened to it both ways through his window and with the FM. And he just loved the sound of the FM. He said that the definition you could hear of the violins was just amazing. He had never heard such a, a clear sound and he loved it. And so he made the decision, let's just go all FM. And if I had not done the mainly Mozart concerts up to that point, I would have been terrified, uh, of the entire show is hinging on this this mechanism to deliver it. Uh, but luckily, we had had months of of drive testing and listening and thought, OK, we, we think we can deliver a pretty compelling experience through an FM transmitter. It'd be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about how 
your customers took on the perceived complexity and or risk. I guess really in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that much risk because I don't think the FCC is going to come down and and ar arrest anybody in the middle of a public event like that. But um, how does that? How did that all work? You know, in terms of your exposure to them about what that looked like and their understanding of that and did they anyone sort of try to get a temporary license or permit or was that part of the process it'd be very interesting to hear all of those details sure i'd be happy to share them and hopefully i'm not incriminating myself or my clients i think we we went into it knowing that okay here's what the fcc regulations are uh and maybe we can just push them a little bit but hoping for goodwill from them should anything happen with the understanding that we are trying to deliver, in a lot of cases, free entertainment to a small amount of space during a pandemic that has wiped out the performing arts scene. So so hopefully we get some leeway. And also, I don't think that the FCC would really be um, aware of what we're doing unless either they were trying to make an example out of something by looking up, okay, who's doing a drive-in? Let's go see what power they're transmitting at or some sort of bizarre coincidence, but we really strove to keep our power levels so low that you wouldn't be aware of this unless you were in the parking lot. Uh, and we did let our clients know if there's a concern, then obviously we're gonna comply and we will reduce the power or turn it off, whatever's needed. For our mainly Mozart client, that really wasn't too big of a concern because um, they favored the PA anyway. Uh, for the opera, I had offered to them another option we could do would be to do basically multiple super low power transmitters throughout the audience area. And then the ushers, as cars would come in, would direct them and say, okay, you tune into this frequency, you tune into that frequency. Obviously, that wasn't a, a desirable goal, especially given the the clientele that the opera has. You want to keep it as simple technically as possible for them. But we had actually looked into that solution as well for Mozart because this problem that we we ran into is if people want to listen to their car stereo and have their windows down at the same time, they're getting multiple arrival times. And how do we solve this problem? It's a really, really tricky one. And one of the solutions we thought is, well, if we create bands of uh, parking that are each, let's say, another 50 feet away from the stage, we could have a different transmitter with a different delay time on it. And then you tune into that frequency and it syncs up to the PA. To do this right, we're talking about five, six, seven, ten different frequencies, and that's kind of a nightmare just in terms of audience education alone. Now, if they tune into the wrong frequency, it's not the end of the, the world. They're still going to hear the show, but it's a lot of complexity. It, it adds more technical technical complexity for us, but not unmanageable, but also finding the available FM bandwidth to do that many carriers. Um, so we ended up not doing that but we did keep it as a zone option for the opera as our plan B if, if we really had to reduce our power, uh, but it didn't come to that. And they were, the the leadership at the opera was really great through the whole thing and they just said, we'll, we'll deal with it if, it if it comes up. Now I did hear recently that the FCC is cracking down on pirate radio stations just as of a couple weeks ago, and they're now finding the landlords or owners of buildings out of which pirate radio stations are being operated $2 million per occurrence. So I think going into next year, it's gonna we're gonna get a lot of pushback from our rental spaces, which are not buildings but parking lots, not wanting to be hit with a two million dollar fine for a single show. It's it's interesting because it seems like there's an obvious opportunity for somebody to drop some 
um, legislation in to create a, 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 you know, a temporary permit system that you could go in and sign up for, for a, you know, and know for sure that you're in a, in a clear frequency, be covered for whatever the run of a show is, you know, from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. for the following two week period or whatever, and, and be able to to do that in the clear. It doesn't seem like that's that complicated, but um, as somebody who's had a little bit to do with the the uh, the slowness of the gears grinding over there at the FCC, I wonder if they could get their act together in, in time or we'll just be out of COVID by the time we get there. So, Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I thought about maybe starting some kind of a petition, but like you said, who knows where we'll be by the time that sees the light of day? Certainly, it feels like the likelihood of the FCC going after the San Diego Opera as opposed to something it views as being more countercultural um, or, you know, uh, testing of the sort of political status quo um, seems seems like you're in, at least you have that going for you in this in this scenario. So um, that 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 I guess that gave you at least some sense of a little cover there, right? Certainly. I mean, if it was based on our intention, I think we're in the clear. We're we're not attempting to broadcast to people's homes and apartments and cars. We're just trying to contain this, like you said, from 7 to 10 p.m. in this one parking lot. It's not meant to be a subversive or or somehow, you know, sweeping activity. And you were on an, a, a truly open frequency? Yes. One other thing that I'll add is we also looked into alternative ways to broadcast to people's cars knowing that the FM legality could be an issue. So we purchased and tested a system to broadcast to an app, uh, a smartphone app on iOS and Android, with the thought that uh, the audience would pre-download the app. They already have some way to connect their phone to their car's sound system. And then we provide some sort of Wi-Fi um, coverage in the, in the parking lot, or we do it over the internet, and then they're using cell data or some combination thereof. And we just found there were so many complications with this that it just didn't make sense, especially when now we're starting to hear about our competitors, they're all doing FM-based events. So it seems like, and without any issue, so it seems like, okay, if we can't provide this, then someone else will. Uh, I think the cell phone app idea is is still compelling for some use cases, but especially with a, a crowd that's not tech savvy to begin with, uh, who may have never connected their smartphone to their car stereo ever. Uh, and then the other big issue that we found was just latency. It'd be very hard to, for that to be deterministic if you're, you got some people going through data services and some people going through a Wi-Fi that you lay out on the, on the space, right? Exactly. That, that's a huge variable. And the other variable we found was just Bluetooth connectivity. Uh, the latency in a, in a Bluetooth con connection from someone's smartphone to their car varied from car to car and phone to phone. And it could be a pretty huge difference. You might have a car that's two or 300 milliseconds off from the one next to it. And so there's no way to make them all the same. Uh, and that kind of was the, the nail in the coffin for that idea, especially with events like the opera where we had iMag so you could actually see lips moving on a screen and lip sync was was more important. So let's talk about rehearsal. 
how did this come together, both in terms of rehearsal and tech? I mean, was there some collaboration with the client when they were in their pre-tech rehearsal period for the show? Because I understand it was a they cut it specifically for this application, so it was a unique production from a rehearsal standpoint, I assume. Certainly. Uh, yeah, cuts from the opera, they, they cut sections out. They, they cut out the entire chorus, uh, which was an, in the mix at one point in our planning. I, I feel for them. The opera did a tremendous amount of planning, of which I was only a small part of, of examining how can we do this, how can we do that. So the the chorus was one part. How many people can we have? How do we socially distance them? How do we provide good audio to all of them? Are we putting all of them on individual mics and headphones? Things like that. And eventually that was cut out. And and so thankfully the scope of this really got whittled down to what I think was very manageable compared to the beginning, which is seven principal singers. An orchestra of 24, uh, no PA system other than the onstage monitoring and an FM broadcast to the audience. And so even though it was still a complex system, it was uh, something that we could definitely bite off and chew. And then another big moving target was where is the orchestra going to be? The union for the orchestra musicians did not want to be in a typical orchestra pit location because they're downwind of the singers. So there's potential COVID exposure. So that was uh, eventually determined. We'll, we'll put them on a separate stage, stage left of the main stage, an entirely separate stage. And they were under a tent for weather reasons, whereas the main stage had a, a typical roof structure for a, a truss supported stage. And then where do you put the conductor is the next question. They have to conduct the singers and the orchestra at the same time. They're in two different locations. Are we going to have to do a bunch of video monitoring? The team from the opera went out to the site and actually did some experiments and found, okay, if we put the conductor in kind of a uh, unusual position in the corner of the orchestra layout, they can still conduct the orchestra, but they're also at the corner closest to the main stage where the singers are, and that worked pretty well. And in terms of the other changes they made to the production, I think the obvious one is blocking, where none of the singers ever got within six feet of each other, and in fact, they're usually... I think 12 feet apart when they were singing. So the director came up with this great new version of, uh, of a way to, to look at this production, which is instead of things happening in real time, it's, it's a memory piece. And Rodolfo is remembering this character Mimi. And so she's sort of like a ghost and that way she can be separated from him. So that was a clever solution there. I'm trying to think of other, I think the other, you know, big change was just cutting down the orchestration to 24 pieces and, that's where I, I felt we in the music department had a really great relationship going. The music coordinator and orchestrator for this, Bruce Stasna, um, I had worked with him on a couple operas before, so we kind of had a good rapport going, and he would come into the our mix room, which was in a trailer, and we would listen to virtual sound checks, uh, recordings of the show, and really try to hone the balance of these 24 pieces, which included one keyboard, which was filling in a few synthesized parts, but very few, and saying, how can we get this to sound as full as possible and make sure all the parts are there? Because any slight mix imbalance with this few players, kind of, you lose an entire voice, an entire section of, of the score. Did the orchestra rehearse distanced indoors before they moved outdoors, or were they really brought together for the first time in, in the, let's say, the tech and staging process? They had, I believe, either one or two rehearsals outdoors at a different venue, 
uh, which is actually their new venue, The Shell, which is looks like it's going to be a really cool outdoor venue in San Diego, which was supposed to open this year. Now it'll be hopefully next year. And similarly, the singers had all of their rehearsals offsite in a different parking lot. And then when the musicians came on site for the first time, we had an orchestra read without singers, just with them. And that was the first time we added audio into the mix, so to speak. And I should mention that they also had plexiglass shields around all of the winds and horns. So that created an interesting, uh, for COVID reasons, that created an interesting audio challenge where the conductor's now not hearing them quite as well. And they are now relying a lot more on monitors to hear what they need to hear. But they are all pros. They had been doing some virtual events. They hadn't actually done any live concerts since March uh, until this one six months later. But they they did great. And I was actually shocked at the end of the first read, walking up to the staff person for the symphony, because this whole uh, production is a, a collaboration between the San Diego Symphony providing the orchestra and the San Diego Opera doing the, the rest of the production. But walking up to that organization saying, okay, what do we need to fix? Ex expecting to get a whole list of things. I can't hear this. This it doesn't work for me. And the reaction is just, everyone's fine. I think there were two musicians that came up at the end and said, I need more of this. I need more of that. And it's like, great. As far as I'm concerned, my job is not just to deliver the sound to the audience. It's to make everyone else feel comfortable so that they can do their job. So whatever I can possibly do in terms of monitoring and intercom is another big part of that so that everyone can see and hear what they need to, to do their job. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to provide that. And I think it's, this is such a, a unique opportunity where you take this art form that's always been done acoustically, and then you add in all these conditions that make it impossible to do it acoustically. The distance between musicians, the distance between the singers and the orchestra, the fact that there's no walls to reflect the sound back on them. And now we're forced to fill in all of those missing gaps with electronic reinforcement or monitoring. It's a it's a great opportunity and it was a lot of fun, but definitely a, uh, a challenge. And, and I'm grateful that everyone was so cool with how it went. That's so awesome. It would be interesting to talk about um, your experience with intercom and sort of learning about intercom, especially, let's say, hesitate to use the word modern intercom, but in your other activities might be interesting to talk about that a little bit and what intercom, how intercom fits into the picture and that kind of thing. Certainly. Uh, Intercom's been kind of this exciting, new, nerdy exploration for me over the last five years or so. Prior to that, I think everyone knows of Intercom as this being this, this key function of production, but it's something that a lot of people just learn to live with because there's been issues with it historically and no one wants to take responsibility for it and no one knows how to fix it and things like that. And when I started learning, well, actually, this is a discipline that ha is a craft and a skill and has some creativity to how it's designed. And then I saw, okay, there's all these cool intercom products coming out that are taking it into the digital realm. I got very excited about it. So my foray into that was mainly with HelixNet and FreeSpeak. So, but leading it up to that, I also was starting to learn about what are the fundamental analog intercom technologies? So I sort of understand what that is before we move on. So two-wire circuit, what's the history of that? Why is it, it it's such an elegant design, even though it, it's the source of so many of our, our gremlins and struggles, but it is truly a, an elegant design that can be expanded and, and run without a lot of thought to it um, from low budget, simple productions up to larger ones. And then understanding four-wire, uh, what does it mean to have a four-wire circuit? Where are they used? Having never used a matrix system before, really, not having been in the broadcast world, understanding that and going, okay, actually, here's a 
here's maybe a, a better way to, to route audio through an intercom system. And then also that unlocking in my brain, like once you're thinking about intercom as a bunch of four wire circuits, suddenly it's no different from the rest of audio. And then you start to think of creative ways to integrate intercom into the rest of your sound systems and sound designs. And that was also really exciting and ended up being a key thing for some of our uh, clients that I can get to, but no longer thinking about it as being the separate thing that maybe we can tap in or out of, but it's kind of a pain to now like, this is a, a tool just like a mixing console and a speaker that we can apply. Uh, so then I learned about HelixNet and the first thing that blew my mind about that was the simplest thing, but like you can plug in a belt pack or unplug a belt pack from a party line and it doesn't create an audible pop. Seems like, you know, that's okay, that's nice, but it's not a big deal. But in the world of corporate events where you have clients that are very high strung and nervous and anxious and are using intercom as the lifeline for this production, every time they get a pop or a bang or some noise in their headset, that's I think that's impeding their their confidence in you as a sound department, even though they asked to have another belt pack added, right? But so suddenly having the system where we can expand and change and move around the system while it's in use with no effects uh, on anyone that's using it or the clients, that to me almost sold the whole system. And then after that learning, you can have 12 or 24 channels on a single XLR cable and choose for each belt pack, which channel you're gonna get. Well, that just simplified the entire uh, signal distribution problem for us. And then I think the third thing, I should say audio quality is of course a big part too, that learning we could have really pristine digital intercom and be free of all the the analog issues that we tried valiantly to to stamp out of our systems for years, but inevitably crept up and one bad cable could compromise an entire system very quickly. Um, but in addition to audio quality, the last thing was once HelixNet became uh, a system that could be run on a network and could actually travel on our same network that we're running Dante on, that was a, a huge revelation for us. And one example uh, of how that works in, in this opera was, this was not a typical layout where you have a backstage and a stage and then a front of house and you have like a snake that goes between them and that's your show. This was a very sort of splintered, unusual design with great distances between things. So you had a trailer for audio video control, you had a backstage on stage, you had an orchestra tent, which was an, another part of the property. You had a, a front of house just for lighting. And then we have directors and the, the directing staff that are spread out throughout the parking lot. And then we have dressing rooms that are inside an arena that's literally hundreds of feet away. And none of these things are in any sort of logical, you know, um, relationship to each other that makes it easy to run cables or things. So now to be able to just distribute a network, which is inexpensive and easy, in a star formation to all these different areas and to have at each of them, our Dante network and our Helix net network made the whole thing so easy. So no matter what we needed for intercom or audio in any of these locations, you just drop a Dante device or a Helix net device and you're good to go. So that was the, the whole foundation for how the system technically was laid out. And then we also of course distributed free speak antennas to all these same places so that you could roam throughout the whole venue including stage management would take a golf cart from backstage all the way to the arena dressing room entrance, hundreds of feet away, pick up talent, bring them back to the stage and be able to be in communication. Another key was the director and assistant director needed to communicate with each other. The assistant director for one takes notes from the director during the show of things that need to be addressed. 
they're both in separate cars in different parts of the parking lot, and they're constantly moving around in rehearsals to see this show from different angles, which is this crazy thing of like, you know, trying to understand looking through your windshield of how does this look when I'm from that angle? And so, wow. so they were driving to from different position to different position instead of in a regular theater moving from seat to seat. Exactly. Wow. Um, and so, so That's they cool. need to be in communication with each other, which means wireless comm. I will say being able to drive from position to position or just even be able to use your car as your tech table does have its benefits when it's late at night and you can turn on your seat warmers and your, your heater. I've never had such a, a comfortable tech table seat. That's but great. yeah, the, there's this this vast area and different situations where we, we needed to be able to deploy intercom and um, the, the modular approach of, of FreeSpeak with putting transceivers where you need them, the network approach of HelixNet, those were key. Uh, one other thing I'll say is we did take advantage of a lot of separate party lines and private channels for this production because of COVID and people needing to talk to each other without being right next to each other uh, and not wanting to have a cacophony of everyone on the same channel so we could get into that some more but that was definitely a key element that's cool yeah i uh, we've had some very interesting and uh, to me gratifying stories about how people have been able to continue to work in their traditional with their traditional associations um and still maintain social distance because of uh, especially wireless uh, capability that we've we've been able to to bring to people and to me anything we can do to keep any part of this business going under the current circumstances um is something that you know i'm incredibly gratified to be able to participate in because this is where we came from clearcom's history comes from live performance and that's that's our roots it's been heartbreaking for those of us who come from this business to to see what's happened to all the people involved in the business over the last months during COVID and anything at all that shows that we're still out there and we're still making culture as a, as a society, as a people, you know, I think is really, really gratifying. So cool. It's a really cool project that you got to be part of in this, in this uh, incredible thing. And frankly, it feels like pivotal, right? I mean, it's opera. It's not like it's not like there was an an alternative to being able to get the audio to people's ears. If that if you couldn't get it to the to the people in their cars, then it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I do not underestimate how much responsibility they were uh, putting on on me in the sound department. And I, I agree with you that it was extremely gratifying to be able to work on something that provided employment to a lot of I think it was over 300 professionals in this industry, many of whom had not worked in six months. And I will say that the entire union crew came back as if they hadn't missed a single day and really knocked this one out of the park. They were so great to work with. They they nailed everything from deploying the system to mixing the show to handling the A2 responsibilities, which were unusual given COVID. Do you think that this kind of way of working will survive COVID? to bring opera or some other kind of performance, perhaps, to people in a different setting, A, kind of as a novelty thing, but also B, just to sort of bring it to different environments, different, potentially different audiences. Do you feel like it's, this is a non-COVID innovation, not just a COVID innovation? Yeah, I think the most, the, the most gratifying benefit of this has been to break down the barriers of 
the cultural norms of what it means to go to a classical music concert or an opera. And you need to dress a certain way and it costs a certain amount of money. And it's about being seen as well as seeing the show. And the fact that this was, especially for the uh, mainly Mozart series that I was a part of, was completely free for many months. And it, it really opened the door to people coming that probably never would have before, either for financial reasons or just because the barrier to entry here not just financially, but but culturally is low. You can stay in your car. You don't have to be seen. Also, I know people brought their kids to the opera that probably wouldn't have brought them otherwise. And it's easier if a kid starts having a tantrum or meltdown, okay, they can play Pokemon for a few minutes and not disturb anyone else in the okay. audience or whatever. And I think the opera leadership understood that too, that this is really about democratizing this experience and we're not going to judge anyone as long as they don't you know turn on their headlights in the middle of the show when they're not supposed to but whatever you do in your car is up to you however you want to enjoy it is up to you all that being said financially i don't think the drive-in format is particularly tenable for performing arts organizations that already are barely breaking even when you fill a packed house so i think it could certainly be like an outreach event or a special thing to raise awareness or to give back to the community and we had actually worked for mainly mozart in the past doing these free outdoor concerts in balboa park which is this beautiful park in san diego there's an organ pavilion and so they would do these free concerts and so it's that kind of thing i think it's a special thing that they can do to give back but i think everyone's going to be very happy to be back in a, a real concert hall or an opera hall whenever that can happen. That makes sense to me. You know, maybe there's somebody who will hear this and get the wild hair that they want to fund a series of drive-in opera performances as an outreach activity or something like that, that I hope so. I think it's really, I mean, it's not just cool because we had a performance. It's cool because it's cool for all of those other reasons. You know, people got to experience something in a different way. And hopefully those people will all be excited by opera in a way that people, the people for whom that was a unique experience, they may, they may, you know, remember that and think, think of themselves as opera people in a way that they didn't before. So that could be great. Yeah, for sure. And I think maybe this truncated length might also be something appealing to pursue in the future. Maybe that makes it a little more accessible when there's no intermission and you get in and out in under 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, I, I heard about some donations coming in to your point uh, about donors supporting this for mainly Mozart, uh, was people on the other side of the country that just read about what they were doing or heard and said, this is so cool. Here's a contribution, even though I'm never even going to get to go to your concert. But I think there are people out there that are, that will definitely support this and make it viable beyond just the ticket sale proceeds. That's great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Comscast Life in Full Duplex. My sincere thanks to Ross Goldman for his willingness to share this impressive event with us. We invite you to join us for part two, where we are joined by Mike Janney, the stage manager for the production. Thanks for joining us on Comscast, Life in Full Duplex. For more information on ClearCom and the amazing things our customers do with Intercom, find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Keep communicating. This podcast was recorded and edited at Bray House Studios. Music provided by Mr. Merides. I'm your announcer, Kathy Vale. Please join us for future podcasts by visiting us at clearcom.com slash blog.